0: Good morning. Isn't that excellent news about our young people memorizing Romans and doing so well in the quizzes? I think that's great. Make sure you uh, compliment them when you see them. And uh, Jonathan Marceau taking the whole deal on uh, the preaching contest. I think that's excellent. Says something about his future. I asked him if he wanted to speak today. And... uh, He said he was tired because he'd given that message four times so <laughs> Saturday a week ago, I was at a men's breakfast in uh, Middletown, and uh, they had for breakfast elk, chip, uh, gravy for the biscuits. And it was just outstanding gravy. And uh, it reminded me of our Wild Beast Feast when, uh, at the Wild Beast Feast, there showed up some Virginia Mountain Copperhead lasagna with spinach, (laughs) and uh, that was supplied by my wife. And uh, I was going through the line out there, and somebody said to somebody next to me, have you had any of that rattlesnake lasagna? That's good stuff. And uh, I knew it was good because my wife made it, but then we won, you know, when we won the the runner-up for taste, then I had to come up and admit to Pastor Everett that it didn't have any copperhead in it, it was just regular old lasagna with spinach. (laughs) And he, for some reason, was bothered by that, you know. For some reason he didn't think it was it was legal to lie about what was in the uh, what was in the meat, but I have not had to admit that yet because I have not received the gift, the prize, okay, so when I get the prize for for winning, then i 'll have to admit that yes, that was a lie. <clears throat> We'd never been to one before, and somebody suggested, we'll just give it a good title. So I figured Virginia Mountain Copperhead, that, you know, that sounds good. <laughs> Wait till next Wild Beast Feast. We will. It's good to be here with you today. <clears throat> I'd like to focus today on uh, grace and the gospel. A number of years ago, John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, talked about an event that occurred in his town. The uh, organization called Jews for Jesus came to Minnesota and he promoted their efforts. And then he received a letter from nine of the large leaders of large churches that said this, and I quote, We feel that efforts by Christians to convert Jews are counterproductive injurious to Christian Jewish relations and contrary to the true spirit of Christ. How would you respond to that kind of letter? Is it right for believers to attempt to convert Jewish people or anyone for that matter? Does the true spirit of Christ, the spirit that encouraged us encourages us to love one another, include attempts to convert Jews. We're ending today a series of messages on grace. Grace involves all kinds of gifts that God gives to unworthy and unsuspecting people. We reviewed the story of the prodigal son. He came home from the pig pen and received grace far beyond anything he could ever imagine a robe, a ring, shoes, and the father ordered steak for a celebration. And we've been thinking about what the prodigal does after having received that grace. How does he live in grace? Last week we talked about four responsibilities that he had in grace and that we have in grace. Do you remember those? Similar to responsibilities of married couples. Responsibility number one, get to know the person that you are connected with, Jesus Christ, 1 Peter chapter 2. He's the living rock, he's the cornerstone. Then get to know your new responsibility in this relationship, your kingdom of priests, you are living stones. And then thirdly, get to know your new responsibilities in this relationship, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, to communicate uh, the truth of that marvelous light that brought us out of darkness. And all of this takes place as we drink in the milk of the word. Four responsibilities. I trust you've had a good drink this week. From the milk of the word? I guess I'm expecting responses. I trust. I trust you've had a good week. So, what do you think the prodigal would do after having received a ring and a robe and shoes as they're grilling up steaks for this celebration? What do you think the prodigal would do with his elder brother? Do you think he would want his elder brother to come and enjoy the celebration? I think he would. But would that be converting a Jew? Would that be counterproductive and injurious to brotherly relations and contrary to the true spirit of Christ? Do you see how this word convert doesn't seem to fit the context? He wouldn't be trying to convert his brother. He'd be trying to give his brother the same blessing he's received. When you try to get someone to join in a celebration, do you use the word convert? You invite people to a party. Do you seek to convert them? Can you convert someone to a party? other than the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. You and I can't convert anyone anyway. The person can't convert herself or himself. Only God can do this act of grace. But I'm interested today in this concept or this this misconcept of the word convert. Convert. Because it's important to our understanding of how God spreads grace. Grace. How does grace move from a prodigal to an elder son, from you to the world? How does God spread grace? It's important to understand what we do. I don't believe that a good picture of what happens under grace is, is covered by the word convert. Convert. But the issue is, how does grace spread? How does God touch others with this same grace? I think there's a process here, and so I'd like to talk about the process. Number one, I've got three statements. The statements focus on A and D and C. Okay, we're skipping B, A, D, C. So number one, grace spreads through an announcement. That's A. Grace spreads through an announcement. My text today is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Here's the passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You'll notice that grace is the good news that comes from the cross, from the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 tells us what God has accomplished. He, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself. Through Christ, meaning through His death on the cross, He reconciled us to Himself. Reconcile means to bring together enemies by taking care of whatever is keeping them apart. So if two people don't get along because somebody embarrassed the other one, reconcile means to take care of that embarrassment by getting one to forgive or release the emotion of that embarrassment. Verse 19 explains more. It says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Because of the death of Jesus Christ, the position of the entire world has changed in regard to God. Because he no longer charges their trespasses against them. Why not? Because Jesus Christ became our substitute. He died our eternal death. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So does that mean everybody's saved or everybody's going to get saved? Jesus took away the sin of the world? No, it doesn't. You remember the elder brother of the prodigal? The father said, All that is mine is yours. And he refused to come in. Reconciliation takes two moves. If two people are enemies and one forgives the other, does that mean they're friends and everything is back to normal? No, the other one needs to reciprocate. That's why Paul continues in verse 20. Verse 20 says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why did he command this if God has reconciled the world to himself? Do you see the answer? Reconciliation takes two moves. Lewis Berry Schaefer, who was for years the president of Dallas Theological Seminary back in the 30s and 40s, he went to, the, went to be with the Lord in 1951, used to illustrate it this way. He said, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and God were like this face-to-face, Adam and Eve turned away into sin and turned their back on God. And because of their sin, God responded to their sin and turned his back on their sin, and they went separate directions. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God turned, Jesus Christ paid the price of mankind's sin, and God turned with his palm back. That's why missionaries can go out and say, we implore you, verse 20, in the name of Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. So the command comes because the work has been done. The command comes because Jesus Christ has made reconciliation possible through his death on the cross. That act on the cross had nothing to do with us in terms of us doing anything. We could be of no help in solving the problem we caused. It was solely the work of God through Jesus Christ reconciling the world to himself as the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Amen? So the good news is good news because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. People need to understand the significance of what Jesus did on the cross. You know, it's not just, oh, I believe Jesus died on the cross. The gospel is not just that he died. The gospel is why he died. He died because there's a sin problem. There's a trespass problem. Grace is only good news to sinners. He died because of our trespasses. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul describes what we're like in Romans chapter 3 when he says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curse, curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. You know, we read that and say, yeah, those, there are bad people in this world. There are a lot of bad people in this world. I work with some. How often do we say that describes me? See, the good news is good news for people who recognize their sin. When the Holy Spirit opens a person's eyes to clearly see their sinful condition, then the gospel comes as unbelievable news. To know that you're hopelessly in sin and then to hear that God is sending out ambassadors preaching peace to dead people because he's reconciled them to himself at the cross is exciting news. I was talking to someone recently who believes that everyone is going to make it to heaven ultimately. That's That's the doctrine of universalism. Universalism. Everybody ultimately is going to get saved. And I didn't bother to ask the question, you mean Adolf Hitler, you know, and some of the known bad ones. But my question was, so why then did Jesus Christ have to die on the cross? What was the purpose of his death? Her response was, I don't want to go there. Why do you not want to go there? You know, she can't go there. Of course she doesn't want to go there. The death of Jesus Christ says that everyone is not going to heaven. The death of Christ says that God judges sin. That he's a God of wrath. That sinners are at ground zero. And their only hope is their substitute, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for their sin. Took the wrath of God in their place. So that verse 21 could say this. Look at verse 21 in this passage. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That is amazing news. Amazing news. Now, the good news has to be announced. That news about the death of Jesus Christ has to be announced. Do you see the end of verse 18? The end of verse 18 says, And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then the, verse, the end of verse 19 says, And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. These two clauses form the basis for the statement in verse 20. Verse 20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal to people on earth through us. We are the voice, God's voice on earth. We've been granted the privilege of announcing this amazing news that God has taken care of the sin problem. So we don't begin by telling men to make their peace with God. We begin by telling men that God has made peace with them. Because of Jesus Christ. We are heralds. Understand what a herald is? A herald. Forgot to bring my horn up. Herald goes, you know, you get... Da, 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 Announcing... It's a herald. A herald's not a lawyer. A herald just makes an announcement, just tells the great news. The good news is that Jesus Christ has died and God is reconciled because of the death of Jesus Christ. We are heralds. We have the privilege of broadcasting this incredible news. We do it the way way Paul did it. Remember Paul's testimony? Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. Three times in Acts, Paul gives his testimony, and every time it's basically the same thing. You know? He's going to Damascus. He sees a light. He hears the voice of Jesus. He becomes reconciled. I bet he told that story a thousand times. That's the way God wants to use you and me. If you've trusted Christ, you have the word of reconciliation. You have it. You don't have to get it. You've got it. You've got it when you got saved. When God reconciled you, the word is to tell your story. You can improve on how to tell your story, but you've got the story by what Jesus Christ has done for you. You may not have been traveling to Damascus. You may not have been killing people in the name of God. But you were going somewhere, doing something, when the light of God's grace crashed in on you. Can you think of that time when you first heard the announcement? When the good news penetrated the darkness and you saw and heard and recognized light. It's an amazing time. That's the gospel. It's the way grace spreads. Timothy Abraham was a Muslim who grew up in Egypt. At the age of 14, he became a Muslim preacher, preaching a sermon on the first Monday of every month in the mosque, 14 years old. He became what his father called a fanatic. An Islamic radical. In rage one day, his father punched him in the mouth, mouth and knocked out a front tooth. He wanted to spread the message of Islam to the United States, so he found a magazine that had pen pal addresses and wrote to a guy named John in Pennsylvania for two years. He said that each was trying to convert the other. One day, John surprised him by coming to visit him in his village. That was the first time he saw a real Christian. John was sincere, frank, genuine, open, and had an amazing prayer life. Timothy didn't know that Christians prayed, but John prayed more than he talked, speaking words right out of the Bible as he prayed. Timothy became jealous of John's intimacy with God and increased his recitations of the Koran. After John left, he wrote him and said, John, Your visit has made me a stronger Muslim. At the same time, he knew that John was praying for him. He couldn't sleep. He would wake up restless in the middle of the night. One night, he reached out for his Bible and opened it at random, and he came upon this verse, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He remembered one day when he was debating John, he made fun of the Bible by saying, your Bible is the most ob- absurd thing. How can you believe the story of Saul who became Paul, the servant of the gospel? And John's reply was, the story is true, and that's why I'm patient with you. You will be another Paul someday. Timothy, Tim- Timothy's reply at that time was, John, you must be out of your mind to think for a second that I could leave the religion of all religions, Islam, But what came to Timothy that night was the searching question, Why are you persecuting me? His turn to Christ was neither fast nor easy. It meant that he would be cast out of his family. He'd sleep on the streets like a homeless person. It meant that the leaders of his Islamic brotherhood would rush to defend Islam and kill him. According to Islam, an apostate would be given a three-day opportunity to recant, and after that, his blood is legitimately shed in the name of Allah. But he came to Christ. For a while, he lived as a secret Christian, but then he made the mistake of leading his friend to the Lord. And it soon came out that he had become an evangelist for another god. He was beaten up in front of the mosque where he had formerly preached Islam His parents disowned him. There were plots to kill him. His parents' home was broken into. His Bible, Christian books, music tapes were all confiscated and burned. He escaped to Cairo, Egypt. He was in and out of trouble in prison for more than five years. He has now recently been able to leave leave Egypt and come to America. He ends his testimony with this statement. Lord... May your love consume me to such an extent that the doing of your will would be the real bread of my life. God has made Timothy a new creation. He used a young man named John to announce the word of reconciliation. Would to God that every Muslim and every person would hear this incredible news of reconciliation. Amen? So number one, grace spreads through an announcement. Number two, grace spreads through a demonstration. This is the D part, A-D-C. Grace spreads through a demonstration. Verse 20 says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador, by definition, lives in a foreign country and represents a different way and a different style of life. An ambassador is the example of what life is like in his country. And it says we are ambassadors for Christ. It does not say we should be ambassadors. It doesn't say be an ambassador. It says we are ambassadors for Christ. We are the example of what God has done and what God can do in a life. We are the display windows. We are the demonstration of what grace can do on earth. How does God spread grace? Through your life, through what you are. You are the example of a Christian of what grace can do. Think of the drastic change that took place in Saul's life. Think of the fact that one day he was doing his best to kill Christians in the name of his God and stamp out the church, and the next day or month or week, he was preaching that same message, standing up with those people he had tried to kill. What do you think it would do to you If you had watched this change in Saul, you know, let's say Saul was your best friend and you and Saul were running together to kill Christians. What do you think it would do to you to see this man so radically changed in ways that you couldn't believe? God communicates his message simply by the changes that take place in people's lives when grace touches them. Saul didn't have to say, hey, folks, I'm different. You know? It's like when light comes into a totally dark room. Does the light have to say, hey, light's here. Notice. No. Even if it's a candle coming in. Nobody has to say, everybody notice, everybody's watching, everybody sees it. This is a message of 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Why are Gentiles going to glorify God about you? Why are Gentiles going to glorify God about you? Do you see the answer? Good deeds. They see your good deeds. They see what your life is like. God is into demonstrations. God is into show and tell. Sometimes the only introduction people get to the King of the land is in your life, what you demonstrate. You may have heard the name Dr. Bernard Nathanson. Dr. Bernard Nathanson, in 1969, he ran the largest abortion clinic in the world. It was in, the, it was in New York City. He co-founded the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Law. After being involved directly or indirectly in over 75,000 abortions, including one of his own ch- children, And seeing his political goals achieved with Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, he came to the shocking understanding that he had been killing human beings. It was actually a year later, 1974, he said to himself, he said, I've come to the realization that I may have been involved in the killing of 60,000 humans. In the late 70s, he became a leading pro-life advocate. You may have heard, him, heard of him as the producer of that powerful video entitled, <clears throat> The Silent Scream. Ronald Reagan talked about this back in the 80s, The Silent Scream. <clears throat> Less than 20 years ago, uh, Dr. Nathanson turned to Jesus Christ. And what influenced him? He actually became a baptized Catholic. What influenced him? How did grace reach him? According to his testimony, it was through contact with Christian pro-life workers. Here's what he said. I quote, They prayed, they supported and encouraged each other, they sang hymns of joy, They prayed for the unborn babies, for the confused and pregnant women, for their doctors and nurses in the clinic. And I wondered, how can these people give of themselves for a constituency that is and always will be mute, invisible, and unable to thank them? How can they do this for no reward, no payback? What opened his eyes? It was the demonstration that he saw in pro-life workers. His enemies opened his eyes. It's exactly the way God works. God uses people who will speak evil of you. They talk you down, and God will use your, your good deeds to speak something into their heart. That's the way grace spreads. I read the testimony of a man who said, I remember a humble, retiring man who stopped me in the church aisle one night many years ago when I was a reckless lad saying with eyes full of tears, I wish you knew Jesus as we know him. It was only a word. He broke down and could say no more, but he had confessed Christ before me in such a direct, personal, and real way that I never escaped it. It's what you do that communicates grace. So Peter, in First Peter, has all kinds of suggestions. He says, honor people. Honor people. First, First Peter 2.15. Honor all people. You honor pers- a person by listening to them. You know, today it's getting to the place where that kind of honor is rare. Very few people want to take the time to listen to you and your problems. Honor people by listening to them. Treat them as as if they're important, because they are made in the image of God. So, number one, grace is spread through an announcement. Number two, grace is spread through a demonstration, A.D. Here's C. Number three, grace is spread through a command. This is sort of a tag-on to the first one, announcement, but it's spread through a command. Command from God. Verse 20 says this, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As ambassadors, we're not only announcing the facts, demonstrating the change, but we're imploring people to be reconciled. The ministry of reconciliation involves a command. It's a plea, we implore you, but it's followed by a command. Be reconciled. Get reconciled. I find that get reconciled to be a very fascinating word. In Greek, it's an aorist imperative passive. Amen? Amen. The fact that it's an heiress means get the job done. Heiress means finish it. Get it done. Get reconciled. Imperative means it's a command. It's your responsibility. Do it. But then it's passive, meaning you can't do it. It's got to be done on you. I find that a very fascinating combination. You know, a command that's passive. You get reconciled and get it done. That's the attitude in which the gospel goes out. The gospel goes out with a command. And you see this all over scripture. Acts 16, Paul said, believe. Believe. In the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, this word command, once I use this word command, this sort of sounds closer to what the uh, nine big churches were complaining about, doesn't it? Aren't you guys converting? You know, you're commanding people. And because we sometimes feel that judgment, we face temptation to soften the command, you know? And so we say to people, Would you like to maybe uh, think about uh, trusting Christ? Or would you like to try God? You know? as if this is just sort of another, another kind of God that you try, or as if we're conducting a scientific experiment to see if God is statistically better than the alternatives. We're inviting people to do another brand, you know. But God doesn't say if you like. He commands the world to repent, to believe on his son who died for them. Think about that. The gospel is not an option. It's a command. And without the command, you may not have the gospel. The gospel is not a suggestion. It's true that we implore you on behalf of Christ, which is a word we plead with you. We don't force you. We plead. But the gospel has to be presented as a command. Why? Why? Think about it this way. If you're sleeping in a burning building and I come running in and say, let's wake up, you wake up and let's talk about your options. May I suggest a change in your location? See, that kind of approach doesn't help you understand the urgency of the issue. What you need to hear is, Fire! Get out of here! What does that do? See, the gospel needs to be presented in the atmosphere of you only have two options and the the one isn't no, isn't any good. This idea that the gospel is a suggestion. I'm not sure that's the gospel. The gospel has to be presented as a command. Jesus said there's a wide road that leads to destruction and there's a narrow road. And that's it. There're two choices. Command puts it into that kind of atmosphere. Do you see why we need to get over the fear of people rejecting us and make make this command crystal clear? When When John the Baptist came, he said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began his ministry, he said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When the 12 disciples went out in Matthew chapter 10, they said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus saw Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. Jesus said to the rich man, go and sell all that you have. To the man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. To the ten lepers, go show yourself to the priest. Their command's flying all over the Gospels. So the communication of grace has to have in it a command and has to take the flack that comes with that command. We're back to Jews for Jesus. Moishi Rosen, the man who began Jews for Jesus, said that most workers in Jewish evangelism sought the goodwill of the Jewish community and tried to avoid friction at all costs. Yet as soon as the missionaries' efforts began to be effective the Jewish leaders reacted with a show of displeasure and accused them of insensitive or offensive methods. But the real problem, he says, is the offense of the cross, not insensitive methods. There was no way, however tactfully loving and sensitive, to tell Jewish people that they needed Jesus without risking the displeasure of the Jewish community leaders. So Rosen says... Having committed myself to the idea that disapproval and rejection were a normal part of Jewish evangelism, I taught my helpers that we all must bear the cross and risk rejection. Once we oriented ourselves to handle rejection, we began to see many Jews come to Christ. The point of the matter is that any command to repent and believe the gospel is offensive to independent people. But it's also a key to their thinking. Dr. Louis Meyer, a Jewish surgeon back at the turn of the century, the 20th century, came to Christ as his Messiah and for his degree from Reformed Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, he studied the effects of evangelism on Jewish people. He found that the effects were good In every way. Even when listeners rejected Christ, turned away, accepted nothing, the results were good. He said they learned to think for themselves instead of merely accepting the teaching of rabbis. So that command is a key part of the gospel. Have you commanded someone to repent? Have you commanded someone in the name of Jesus Christ to turn to Christ? I personally find this very hard to do. Even when they're my children. You know, I feel like I've got to have some kind of permission to command them. And yet God wants to teach me how to communicate the gospel with a command. So when the pastor of a church says we feel that efforts by Christians to convert Jews are counterproductive, injurious to Christian-Jewish relations, and contrary to the true spirit of Christ, how do you respond? Do you see that he doesn't understand the spirit of Christ? Neither does he understand the word convert. John Piper, who wrote an article on this, concluded his article with this statement. And I quote, Judaism is so central to Christianity that there is no salvation without it. And Jesus Christ is so central to Judaism that there is no salvation without him. It is not arrogant for Christians to say to Jewish people, we have no hope without your heritage and your Messiah and neither do you. In fact, even though it is perceived as offensive to many Jewish people, the call for prayer that Israel would believe on her Messiah is a profoundly loving act. For whosoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's why the apostle prayed, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So I conclude with these three statements. Number one, the gospel at core is not telling people what they should do, but announcing what God has done. It's an announcement. It's the great news that Jesus Christ has reconciled the world. Through the cross, God has solved the problem. Paul sees his main job as not telling men to make their peace with God, but telling them God has made his peace with the world. Number two, the gospel at core is a demonstration of power, power to change you. It's the message of, let me explain why I'm different. And number three, the gospel at core is not a suggestion of another option, but a command. Be reconciled to God. Have you received this grace? Have you ever come to Jesus Christ? Have you ever been reconciled? God wants to reconcile you. You come to him, you humble yourself. You invite Jesus Christ into your life, to your heart. You ask him to forgive you. He will reconcile you. And if you have, is grace moving out from you? Have you invited anyone else to the celebration? You're going to meet elder brothers. They need to hear the command. They need to see the demonstration of God's power to change you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the day when grace entered into our hearts and our lives, beginning with our mind, when the light penetrated by your grace. I pray for anyone here who has never experienced the tremendous, unbelievable blessing of receiving from you a robe and a ring and shoes and experiencing that celebration. May they today come to Jesus Christ. And for, the, for those of us who have, would you energize and motivate us that as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, we might spur the news Thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.